Well, I'm not supposed to say anything until the screen goes up, so I'm not sure where that leaves me for the next few seconds. It is so good to uh, be with you uh, this morning, and it's really uh, a blessing. And why don't we begin by opening our Bibles to two places, uh, Matthew chapter 11 and Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And uh, as you turn to Matthew 11 and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, I just want to express uh, my love uh, for this congregation. And we get to reap the fruit of some of your discipleship in uh, Lynn Blakeman, now Lynn Shreve, and the Mims, and got the privilege of having Jonathan with us for some of his time in uh, seminary. And it's just a great uh, blessing to be here. I've called Pastor Ted multiple times over the last 10, 11 years in ministry to ask advice and have always found him to be a wise counselor. So it's such a great privilege for me to be uh, with you in such a faithful church. Um, I want to begin, I will read scripture quickly, but I want to begin by telling you my goal for this morning, uh, very generally. Very generally, my goal for us this morning is that I'm praying that I will be used of God to draw people to Jesus, to equip people to serve Jesus, and then to live for Jesus. So drawing people in, equipping them, and then calling them to live for the Lord. I couldn't be happier than if God did that through a weak vessel, a weak person like me this morning. Now let me get a little bit more specific. A little bit more specifically, I would love to see families drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, equipped to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and then living for the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a dream come true for God to do that. Now there's always the issue when you're speaking on families. I mean, isn't it hard when you're the single guy and they do the family series? Eight weeks on families, it's like a nightmare come true. Your church life. I did 14 weeks on uh, marriage and the family one time, and I just relentlessly was talking to our singles, as I'm sure your pastors have been. Let me just encourage you. Married, fam- married couples and families cannot come to the kind of maturity they're supposed to without single people spurring them on. Paul and Timothy were single men called by God to give us the most profound instruction in all of the scriptures about the family. And so when we speak to families, we're not speaking to something that's really just for part of the church, but really for the whole people of God. Now here's what I'm hoping will happen this morning. Generally, call people to Jesus, equip people to live for Jesus, live for Jesus. A little more specifically, call families to Jesus, equip families to live for Jesus. A lot more specifically, I would love to see families training their children how to love prostitutes and drunkards and tax collectors and sinners and outcasts and minorities because there is no way to teach children how to obey Jesus without teaching them how to be like Jesus. And Jesus was not someone who shielded himself from the ravages of being in a sinful, fallen world. In fact, he basically penetrated into the most ravaged places in our sinful, fallen world to make sure that the gospel was getting to those who it might not otherwise reach. And so my goal this morning is really to cultivate the kind of Christian parenting, the kind of Christian grandparenting, the kind of Christian care for children and families that results in children that actually look like Jesus which is utterly unique and really is supernatural and which we need to ask the Lord's help to do because it's utterly impossible on our own. And so the way I want to do this is by looking at two brief texts and giving you three ways in which I think these texts apply to us this morning. First text I want to look at is Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Matthew chapter 11, 
and verse 19. And this is just, this is the Lord Jesus Christ describing his own ministry, telling us about an accusation that was brought against his own ministry, and then defending his own ministry in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. There the Lord says these words. He says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, do you hear that? This is the Lord Jesus Christ describing his own ministry, and he starts by calling himself the Son of Man. And in the Scriptures, the Son of Man doesn't doesn't mean that Jesus had a mommy and Jesus had a daddy and that he was a Son of Man. The Son of Man is one of the most lordly titles in the entirety of the Scriptures. It's a title that comes from Daniel chapter 7 where we hear about the Son of Man who will be the one who ascends to the right hand of the Father and the Father gives him authority over every tribe and every tongue and every nation to rule. And Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating hummus and pita. The Son of Man came eating figs and fish. He came sitting down to eat meals with common people. He came um, eating at dinner parties with a rich man named Simon. The Son of Man who would conquer the world and will conquer the world, indeed has conquered the world. That Son of Man, he says, came eating and drinking. Have you ever tried to think about the major ministry events in Jesus' life. Repeatedly, the major ministry events of Jesus' life are that he's eating food with people. This is a ministry philosophy I wholeheartedly embrace and, 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 and think is wonderful. There's one commentator who's actually said that in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ is actually always on his way to a meal or at a meal or just leaving a meal. Now, I haven't had the ability to go and check every moment of the Lord's ministry, but there's certainly a sense of truth to that. We always find the Lord Jesus Christ eating. He came, and the warp and the woof of his life was that he was eating with people and spending time with people in the most common of all human activities, eating. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And so here we have an accurate, from the mouths of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, description of his ministry. But then we have an accusation, don't we? We have an accusation about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. What can I do for you? Okay. You're good. No S. Okay. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Thank you. And they say, notice this is an accusation now. They say, this is what the people are saying. They say in verse 19, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this accusation, like all good accusations, if you've ever been accused of anything wrongfully, This accusation is brilliant because it's partially true and partially false. If if someone were to walk up to me and say, you know, Ryan is Ryan is from China. He was he's a Chinese man. You'd be like, nah, I don't I don't think so. There's just no way that's possibly true. But if you get me with a beard and you say, well, he's an Arab, sometimes people will believe that. You know, there's 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 got to be an element of truth to make something work. If there's no element of truth then no one's going to believe it. But what they're accusing Jesus of is being a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And some of you are exploring Christianity right now and you're thinking about the gospel for the first time and you ought to be uh, gauging yourself and asking yourself, am I able to detect what parts of the Scripture are giving me lies about Jesus and what parts of the Scripture are telling me the truth? And one of the things you ought to be able to detect right here is which part of this statement is true And which part of this statement is false? And the obvious lie here is that Jesus was a glutton 
and a drunkard. And that's just amazing because Jesus is the pinnacle of people who knew how to enjoy the good things of life and never, ever abuse them. He knew how to have seconds, but not fourths. He knew how to, he knew how to enjoy all the good things that God gives, but never to the point where it, it went over the line into gluttony. Jesus was the one who made, uh, what commentators put it, he made a baptismal tank full worth of wine at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. He made a massive amount of wine. And surely there were people there in Cana of Galilee who abused that wine, but the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't one of them. He was always filled with the Spirit and never drunk with wine. He was always the one who, would, who liked to eat, but was never dependent on food. Think about this. In John chapter 4, he is hungry. He's sweaty. He's tired. He's been traveling. And he stops by a well, and his disciples go to get lunch. They go to get the food. And when they get back with the food, they say to him that we've, they've got their lunch and that he should eat. And he says to them, I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His will. By that, what He means is, I've been eating all this time. I've been witnessing to the woman of Cana Galilee, and that just feeds my soul. Those are not the words of a glutton. The glutton says, I've been witnessing here, but lunch is here. Let's put this aside. I'm here to eat. And that's not the Lord Jesus Christ. And He was not a drunkard. He could create wine, but never abuse it. The part of this statement, though, that is true is that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors have a bad reputation in our culture, and it's getting worse all the time, but, but they don't nearly have the kind of bad reputation they had in the ancient world. In the ancient world that Jesus lived in, a tax collector was a Jewish man who worked for the Romans. He was working for the man. He was working for the system that was against the Jews. And not only that, not only was he working for the oppressive Roman government and taking taxes from his own people, he was often extorting taxes and taking more than he could do. So he was, the, he was kind of universally agreed upon as corrupt and foul and bad for the community and bad for society. He was kind of the equivalent of a drug lord. Someone who everybody agrees, doesn't matter where you're at, everyone agrees drug lords are bad for society. And here we hear the Lord Jesus say that he's being accused of being a friend of tax collectors, a friend of people like drug lords, a people, a person who is a friend of the most corrosive elements of society, and he's a friend of drunkards, which is just utterly Amazing. It means that he really was a friend of sinners. And let me just say another word to you. If you're here exploring Christianity and thinking about Christianity for the first time, some of you children are continually thinking through Christianity, continually exposed to the claims of Christ. And many of you, as you've explored Christianity, have gotten the idea that there is guilt involved in Christianity, and there is. There is a sense of guilt that comes from knowing there's a holy God and we've sinned against this holy God, and so He has every right to be eternally angry with our sin. And yet to explore Christianity that far and not press on a little further is to miss the whole of Christianity. Because the same God who is holy, and the same God who is righteous, and the same God who condemns sin, that same God is a God who is a friend of sinners. And who comes to befriend them, to eat with them and ultimately to die on the cross for them so that they might be saved and have the debt that they owe for their sin fully paid. If you're exploring Christianity, or even if you're a Christian for years and you've just you've gotten away from the basics, brothers and sisters, let your conscience find rest in this. Jesus Christ is fully God. He is the Son of Man. And he is the friend of sinners who would not only eat fish with a sinner, but who would die on a cross to take the wrath of God on himself for sinners. So we've seen a description of Jesus' ministry. He ate with people. We've seen an accusation against Jesus' ministry. He was a drunkard. He was a glutton. And he ate with tax collectors and sinners. And now we need to see Jesus' defense of his ministry. I love Jesus' defense 
of his ministry, it can be summed up in two words. Two words. It works. You want me to defend why I hang out with prostitutes even though I'm a rabbi? It works. They get saved. They come to know me. They start living holy lives. You Pharisees, you hang out with sinners and you make them twice the sons of hell as when you were done with them. All you do is make moralistic legalists. When I get down and dirty with sinners and into their lives, I start calling them to repent. They they think, I've never experienced this before. There's a religious man who will spend time with me and tell me to repent. These are mixed signals here. He'll be with me. He, He tells me I'm bad. I love him. And Jesus says, my method works. The biblical way of saying it works is wisdom is justified by her deeds. You want to know why I do this? You want to know why I do this thing that looks so foolish? Spending time with people you think will corrupt me. Spending time with people who couldn't go into the temple. You know why I want to do this? I do this because the wisdom of what I'm doing is justified in this People who are immoral become moral because of the grace they see in me. It works. You know why so much of our evangelism doesn't work? Because we don't do it. The reason so much of our evangelism is unsuccessful is because it's untried. The reason so many people aren't converted through our ministries is because we've never met so many people. It is not because the Word of God is no longer living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it will know, and now it returns to itself void. Ah, in this generation, the Word's returning void. We're in a new generation, right? The times are changing, folks. Word of God can't save drunkards and sinners like it used to, so we better retreat from them and stay in our holy huddle because at least then we will get to heaven and God will open the doors for the frozen chosen to arrive at the pearly gates and he will celebrate our arrival, right? Wrong. The word of God is living and active. The Lord Jesus Christ saves people by being with them, by loving them, and by serving them, by calling them to repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand in his life. That's his ministry. Anybody with any amount, you've got five bucks, you have a ministry budget for Jesus kind of ministry. Eating and drinking. Got the dollar menu, ministry galore. (laughs) Eating and drinking, being with sinners, not sinning, and then justifying what you're doing, even though it looks risky, by the fact that it, it works. People get saved when you do this. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. We are in the same Bible. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, is written by the same Holy Spirit as Matthew chapter 11. When my mom first got converted, she liked Jesus. She wasn't too sure of Paul. She's still converted, so she likes Paul now. I had a friend, he got converted. He liked the red letters. He was suspicious of everything else. But in due time, the true child of God will see that all the words of God in the Scriptures are from God Himself equally. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, the Holy Spirit says to us these words, Fathers, of course, mothers are implied here because of verse 1 and 2 which tells children to obey their mothers and their fathers. Any child that leaves today and says, I was told to obey my father, not my mother, did not hear the sermon correctly. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's Christian parenting. Primarily the responsibility, wherever there's a father in the household, it is primarily the responsibility of that father to raise his children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now let me ask you one question. Which Lord? Which Jesus are we talking about? Are we talking about the Jesus of Matthew 11? He's the only Jesus available. 
He's the only true Son of God, the only true Son of Man. And the question before us as parents is, am I raising my kids to look like Him? This passage begins with a a negative admonition. Do Do not exasperate your children. And we often think, oh, I'm going to exasperate them if I get angry. And you will exasperate your children if you get angry. And you need to join with me as a father in repenting of any anger that comes out in your fathering because it will certainly exasperate your children. Another way we think we exasperate our children is by abdicating, just by absence, by being detached, by being sucked into the internet when the kids are all around you and not investing in. That can exasperate your children because lack of leadership in someone's life is exasperating. But have you ever considered that maybe one of the ways we can exasperate children is offering them a purpose and a calling that is far less, far more trivial than the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ? Keeping your nose clean is not something that you should get excited to live and die for. In the name of Jesus, keep your nose clean. No, no. There's greater things stirring in the soul of man than for that to be the high calling. And if you give your children a small calling, you will exasperate them in a land of triviality and superficiality. Then the Apostle Paul goes on and he says, but discipline and instruct them in the the fear of the Lord or in 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 the instruction of the Lord. And both of these words are somewhat positive and somewhat negative. To discipline and instruction, there's a sense of teaching. There's a sense of reading them the Proverbs, of guiding them through life, of teaching them the doctrines of the faith, total depravity, and and teaching them about the perseverance of the saints, and teaching them about the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all implied in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. But there's also something negative. There's the correcting them when they stray applying the board of education to the seat of knowledge when that is appropriate, correcting them and getting them on the right path, setting their worldview right. But we're so prone, aren't we now, to be more concerned that our children understand the doctrine of total depravity than they actually know someone who's totally depraved. We want our children to memorize all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But get in this bubble because there are sinners out there. And you will fall if you're with them. I'm just going to say this. I'll, I'll say some balancing things later. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not fall when with sinners. And we are given the same spirit as Him. And we are not given a spirit of fear towards this sinful world, but a spirit of power and of self-control and of a sound mind. And that's what we're inviting our children into is that life in the Spirit. And so what I want to stress in this sermon, in this message to you, is that both of these passages are in the Word of God. That Matthew chapter 10 verse 19 is the Word of God in its description of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. And Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 is in the Word of God as a description of how you are to raise your children. And so if you take Ephesians 6 4 literally, which I trust most of you do, it means that you're raising your children to be able to say, I eat with sinners. And I do it so much that I get accused of being a drunk. But I'm not. And if you want the proof for why it's a good thing, well, I brought more kids to youth group than anyone else last week, so it works. I'm seeing people saved as I'm in contact with sinners. And what I want to do this morning is give us three applications that move us towards that. Three applications that move us towards that theological vision. 
The first is, parents, you are called to set an example. You are called to set an example. You are called to set an example, and by that, what I mean is that you can't simply, uh, we're not talking about just throw your kids to the most dangerous kids in school and have them hang out with them as much as you can, and that's good Christian parenting. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that parents are called to be an example to their children in the matter of showing hospitality and love to sinners. You know, it's so amazing, isn't it? Um, The Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty, did not primarily reveal Himself in a theology lecture, did He? I mean, I, I love theology lectures as much as the next guy. But the Lord did not primarily reveal Himself in a theology lecture, but we beheld His glory. 1 John says He touched His hands. He he looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He came in the flesh to show what a life that embodies the truth of God and the reality of God and the doctrines of God. He came to show what that would look like in the flesh. And isn't it, we all do learn better from just being with people. I don't know about you, but I'm just a mimic. If I hang out with someone from the deep south for like three or four days, I got a drawl like you wouldn't believe it's coming. I get back to Canada where I'm from, and all of a sudden everything gets real proper in my, uh, in my, in my intonations. We're all at some level mimics. Uh, people who naturally copy the people we're with. And part of biblical maturity is choosing the right people to be with and to be like. And that's good. The Lord Jesus wants our discipleship to be like that. Think about the words of the Lord Jesus. Follow me, Mark 4.22. Mark, uh, Matthew 4.22. Mark 3.14. He chose the twelve that they might be with him. I mean, why were you chosen, twelve? So we could be with him. Spend time with him. The Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example. It's interesting that the command to elders in 1 Peter 5 is very interesting to me. It says that we are not to domineer over those in our charge. What's the opposite of domineering, Peter? But being examples to the flock. Isn't that interesting? The opposite of domineering is setting an example. Domineering means I ain't doing it, but you will. And an example says, I'll lead the way. Come with me. And so let me ask the moms and the dads, and the grandparents especially. And this matter of spreading the kingdom of God to prostitutes, drunkards, rich young rulers, legalistic religious types, are your children seeing in you an example that they can follow? If they aren't, then this church is not being regulated by the Scriptures. I have a suspicion that in a Reformed Baptist church that were one of your pastors to serve you the Lord's Supper and sort of mess up the words of institution, maybe not fence the table, maybe get a little wild with the liturgy, someone might write an email. Anyone maybe write that email? I'd get that email. And yet you can have hundreds of people who do not know the least of these, and no one writes an email. That is not by abiding by the regular principle. That is not being regulated by the Scriptures. And in fact, to care more for formal religion in a worship service is the height of Old Testament hypocrisy. If you want to make God mad, you care more about what happens in your ritualistic services than on Monday to Saturday. That, that's, the, that's an Old Testament message. Who has, who has required this trampling of my courts? Who has required this sacrifice? Reason with me. Seek forgiveness. Do justice. Love the oppressed. Now I care about the regulation of our worship services on Sunday morning 
according to the Scripture. I care deeply, and I'm not encouraging less care. But if that care isn't matched by and exceeded by a care for the lost and loving them with the Gospel, I promise the best situation you could be in is that your Father would discipline you. I want to tell you a story about some parents who set an example. Reformed Baptist elder, one of our elders, engineer, solid guy, clean-cut guy, and his wife, she's a homeschool mom. This happened to them probably about four or five years ago now. Uh, We had a situation arise in our church that was uh, flummoxing to say the least. We had a prostitute who was under house arrest but didn't have a house and she had a four-day-old baby and had just been had been taken out of the hospital so here she is she has a literal newborn child in her arms she has no life skills at all or very few life skills and she's under house arrest she's got the ankle bracelet and everything that's going to go off if she's not at home but there's no home well, we had this guy in our church at that time, and this guy had his own issues. He had murdered. He had, he had kidnapped. He was a rough-around-the-edges guy, to say the least. And he decided immediately, well, she's staying with me. So the baby and the prostitute began living with him. Well, a few guys got wind of this from the church, and they said, hey, listen, you know, we, we love you. We know you want to serve her. But single woman, living at your house... This is not wise. He heard that. And so another married couple from our church took this woman and her child into their home. But they could only take them for the weekend. Things weren't working out for them. So the mother and child eventually wound up in one of our elders' homes with his wife and their three children from about four or five years old to just knocking on the door of the teen years in their home. And for the next 18 months their front room and their shotgun house became the home of this woman and her child. Immediately, the women of Emmanuel started doing Bible studies at the home. Why at the home? Well, when you've got an ankle bracelet that's going to go off, you're really limited and for a far location goes. And so they did it right there. Eventually, the ankle bracelet came off. She was able to come to the church. And she was able to be around the life of the body. Now you think, what were they doing exposing their children to this. Well, I would say that as they walked by the way and as they talked by the way, they were able to teach incredible lessons about the character of Christ, the mission of the church, Jesus' willingness to be a friend of sinners. And I would say that those homeschooled kids got an unbelievable Christian education during that time. Parents need to set an example for their children of what Jesus was actually like or they can make no claim to Christian parenting. The second thing is that we need to lead our little ones to Jesus through equipping. There shouldn't just be this example. There should be equipping. And, and I want to be very careful here. Here's where the balance comes. If you were waiting for that balance that I promised, here it comes. There are ways that we should be separate from sinners and should encourage our children to be separate from sinners. There are. There really are. What are we told in Psalm 1? That we're not to walk in the way of sinners. We're not to sit in the seat of scoffers. We're not to be engaging in sin with sinners. What are we told in Ephesians chapter 5? We're told that the humor of the ungodly world is not to characterize our humor. There should be no coarse speech or coarse jesting among us. And so when I talk to you about helping your children be on a mission for God, I am not saying throw your children to the wolves in the least. But what I am saying is that there is more to helping your children be Christ-like than separating them from sinners. That may be the starting point of cultivating Christ-likeness, but the end goal is always getting them with sinners. That's what you're aiming for. 
is that my children can hold their own by the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit with sinners. And I know that's risky, but it works. And sinners get saved. And one of the ways that you equip your children is by knowing the Proverbs better. Say, I know this. The Proverbs talks about spanking and working hard. And I I already talked to my kids about the Proverbs. Do you know that the Proverbs is also meant to help you deal with the kinds of issues you'll face when dealing with real live sinners? You remember the Proverbs is written by a guy who broke up a fight at a brothel. Right? Solomon had two prostitutes fighting over a baby in front of him. And he broke up their fight with his wisdom. That's the kind of guy that... Solomon was not a monk going, I don't know what people deal with out there. This was a guy who knew what it was like, the kind of prostitutes would fight over a baby and steal someone's kid. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that comes out of a brothel. Solomon's like, I got wisdom for that. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but the whole first chapter, part of the first chapter of Proverbs is just written to help keep, keep kids out of gangs. I can't get my kids near a gang. You shouldn't get them in a gang. But the Proverbs, interestingly enough, is written to keep them out of a gang. Let me, let me show you this. It's Proverbs chapter 1. I know I'm stretching credibility at this point, but let me, let me uh, get, you, get you there in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Now that's interesting. You listen to my wisdom because it's like bling. You listen to my wisdom because it's like jewels. The kids out there are going to offer you jewels. They're going to tell you to decorate yourself and act all fat. You want real, you want real self-decoration. It comes from godly wisdom. Not big diamonds in your ears. Not a big gold cross around your neck. Real wisdom comes from what I'm saying. It's int- why, would he, why would they use that language? Why compare wisdom to jewelry? Because when people lose biblical wisdom, they get infatuated with jewelry. It's the way the world goes. He goes on. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. That is the ancient Near Eastern way of saying, let's go roll somebody. Let's just wait behind the corner, take him down, grab his wallet, and we're out of here. We'll have money for the whole weekend. This is a believing father who's in the head of a gang member. He's not sitting there going, I don't know what gang members think. I mean, I got saved when I was four. I got no idea. He's not talking like that. Now, there's nothing wrong with being saved at four. I wish all my kids had gotten saved at four. What, what's wrong is not knowing what's out in the world, especially when the Word of God, which is sufficient to equip you for all things, has given you leadership. See, here's how gang members think, son. They're going to come to you and they're going to say, you want money? You want money? I'll help you get it. We're going to roll that guy. He doesn't deserve it anyway. He's just high on the hog. Let's roll him. The father is in that gang member's head and he's equipping the child. He's saying, you want graceful garlands for your head? You want pendants for your neck? You follow my wisdom. And then he says, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. You don't, you don't spread a, a net in front of a bird, do you? Hey, bird, I'm spreading a net for you. You don't do it. You hide the net. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. You get involved with a gang, you get shot like you're in a gang. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain takes away the life of its possessor. Now, this is amazing. This is a father, the prototypical Proverbs father. And what's the first thing he's got to talk to his son about? You're going to have other influences, peer pressure influences outside of me. I'm going to get myself in their head and I'm going to tell you before you hear it from them what they're going to say. Beloved can I suggest to you that one of the most important things you can do in your parenting is to make sure that your children see the dark side of sin from you before they see the deceptive side of sin from a sinner. 
I grew up just exposed to sin on sin's terms. I grew up reading Hit Parader magazine, which was the big heavy metal magazine of my day, and just being engrossed in every sinful thing I could imagine. And I was taking it from the world. The world said it was glamorous. I believed it was glamorous. The world said it was luxurious. I believed it was luxurious. My wife grew up in a pastor's home where men with hangovers were coming over to get counseling, where marriages that were dissolving were coming to his house for counseling. She was seeing the same sin as I was, but she was seeing the backside of it. I fell for the lie. She had seen where it led. You want to expose your kids to where it leads. There are some things you don't want to expose them to, but where sin leads is not one of them. You want to expose them to it, and then you want to equip them for ministry. And one of the ways you do that is beginning beginning to get them ready for the dangers. Son, this is going to be dangerous. We're going to go doing some witnessing downtown. These are some of the lies you're going to hear. I want you to be in your school as someone who can witness to people, but here are some of the dangers you're going to see. I'm going to get you ready for it in advance. The Word of God can hold you back. Next thing you need to do is get your children ready for the direction. You need to get them ready for the direction. I'll just go over this quickly, and then I'll move to my third point. You need to be crystal clear that the reason we're moving into the lives of unbelievers is not so we can be cool like unbelievers. Far too often when I hear the word missional, what I think is that people just really want to eat at fancy restaurants, dress like the coolest kids in town, and drink craft beers to the glory of God. But missional to Jesus is about getting with unbelievers to call them to repentance. Not so you can be a cool Christian, but so you can be a fool for Christ. Okay, last point. The last thing you need to do is you need to begin to give your, opportunity, your children opportunities for engagement with unbelievers. You need to set an example so that your home is a place where your children are serving the church, where your children are serving the world where your children are serving the nations. You need to set that example. You need to equip. Hey, this is going to be dangerous. Here's what you watch out for. You need to equip. Here's the direction we're going. We're here to call people to repentance. We're not here just to hang out and be cool. But then you need to move them into steps of engagement. And I won't read it, but Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Matthew 10, 1 through 15. You'll want to look at that later. It says that he chose the 12 and then he sent them out on a mission trip. Isn't that amazing? He chooses 12 people and then he, he doesn't say, stick with me. I know what I'm doing. I came from heaven. He sends them out to do it themselves because there is no better way to learn, is there, than cutting your own teeth and really having to try it for yourself. And so what are some ways that you can move out on missions? What are are some ways that you can equip your children to move out on missions? The first thing I'm going to say is this. Start where you are. Start where you are. I don't know any prostitutes. Well, you probably aren't going to know any tomorrow either. So so you're going to have to do something else for now. God will move you. He'll move you. But start where you are. You're in a baseball league. You're in a soccer league. You got a hobby. What would happen to your family worship times if you were just consumed with praying for every person on your kid's soccer league that they'd be getting saved? If you're, son, we're going to soccer today and I want to teach you the gospel. And the reason I'm teaching you the gospel is I want you saved. And after uh, your team loses for the eighth time in a row, I want you to give them the hope that will never die. Because your team is not the hope that will never die. That's clear. And so you, you, want, to, you want to be equipping your children. What would happen if you, when sitting on the sidelines, were not sitting there going, this is the time to catch up on emails on the iPhone. I tell you what, right now, this is the time. But you were looking around that soccer field, seeing that every one of those people would perish in just a few moments. And you began to work relationships. Is that your boy over there? He's pretty good. You get talking to them and begin to work things towards the gospel. Start where you are. I don't have time to add anything else to my life. That's fine. Start where you are are. Second, bring missions to everyday life. 
bring missions to everyday life. We realized in our home, Christy and I, my wife and I realized this maybe a year ago, that we were teaching our kids how to clean their rooms. We were teaching them how to clean the kitchen. We were instructing. We were quoting Bible verses. We were disciplining. We were doing everything possible to teach them to clean their room and to clean the kitchen and do all these things. But we never told them why. We like to have our kitchen clean, our living room clean, so that people can come over and we can show them hospitality and serve them and talk to them about Jesus. We had all these abstract things. You've got to do it. The Bible says you're to obey me. I'm the father. You're the child. See Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. We've read this before. You are not obeying me. Let's obey. That's good. But why? Why should the house be clean? Why should the bed be made? Because when your friends are come over, we want you to have them up in your room and want you to encourage them in the Lord. Connect the things of everyday life to the mission of God. Third thing, last thing, go where you're not. Go where you're not. Now, we've had an interesting opportunity to help our kids go where they're not emerge in the last couple months. We live in the inner city, but we homeschool our kids. We're not in the thick of neighborhood life at all times. But two years ago, we put up a basketball rim and in our backyard, and no one came. Our, we just played with it a little bit. And all of a sudden this year, every kid under 13 in our neighborhood just going through the basketball rim. They, they love it. There's, there's a couple basketball rims down at the park, but all the big kids get those. And so the little kids started to come to ours. And at first, you know, we're talking about this and we're like, you know, if they're always there in the backyard, it might not be very safe when you get home alone, Christy. And then Christy's like, yeah, but I think, I think God has brought them here. And so we decided we were going to try to love on these kids. So the first thing I did is I, I, I forced my kids to go out and play with the neighborhood kids. And my kids are homeschooled. I love homeschooling. But that makes you a little soft sometimes. And so it's good for you to get out. There's nothing wrong with homeschooling. But let's just face it, it's not the most missional activity at all times. And if it's not, you need to compensate for that. Nothing wrong with it, same decision I've made. But you've got to know where it's weak. And so I got my kids outside with the neighborhood kids. Well, they're coming inside, they're like, the one kid's mean. I, I basically said, listen, if the worst your kid ever gets is a mean kid in your own backyard, you're okay, get out there. Because there's a sense in which they need that interaction. Yeah, they'll probably learn a few words this summer that I was hoping they wouldn't learn. But I would rather see them cultivate a heart and an ability to interact with those who are lost and begin to share the gospel with them. And these kids will kind of be nice to my face and then disobey me when I'm gone. So I'll sit down with them. Sat down with them last week and we did a Bible study. Hey kids, stop basketball. Gather on my step. Let's sit down. Image of God in man. You were made in the image of God. So let's dress like it. Pull your pants up because my daughter doesn't want to see your underwear. And, and let's begin to interact as people made in the image of God. And let me tell you how the image of God gets remade through the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. All right, back to playing basketball. You want to feed your kids with that because then when you're doing badly, your kids will call you to account. I had a homeless guy come to my back door a while back, and uh, I was just like, oh, I know, Lord, i got to give him a sandwich, but that's all I want to do. I just want to give him a sandwich, then I want to go. i got something else to do. And so I said, just stay here. I'll go get you a sandwich. Made the guy a sandwich. I'm taking it outside, and my son Luke says to me, Dad, you're going to share the gospel with him, right? <laughs> of course. Yes, let me get on that. And so sure enough, I took the sandwich out and made sure that I shared the gospel with him. How can you move to make mission a more a part of your family? What would Keith Maddie do? What kind of hallelujahs would he scream if every family in this church said, we're using one of our weeks of vacation to go on an international trip in the next five years? The same way some families save for three or four years for Disney World, we're saving and we're going overseas. And you know what I find happens to families that go on missions trips? Here's what always happens. They go, it was crazy. We had opportunities to share the gospel all the time. I'm like, you know why that happened? They're like, why? Well, because you were trying to meet people, and every day you were praying that you would meet them people and share the gospel with them. And you know, when you do that, God 
pretty much always answers that one. So take your kids overseas and then bring them home and do the same thing. Right where you are. You get started. Get started with something. So let me encourage you to take a step. Let me encourage you, if you will, even just to take a moment right now and ask, what's that step going to be? So we saw the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. So much so that he got a reputation not for being reformed, not for being Arminian. He got a reputation for being drunk. That was his reputation. It was wrong, dead wrong. But that was the reputation. And we've been instructed to raise children like that by the Word of God. How are you going to move one step towards taking an example? What's the step? Maybe the step is, I have no idea. I'm just going to commit to pray about it. That's good. Start there. Maybe you know there's something going on in your block or your school. Seal that in your mind. The Word of God loves resolves. Colossians 1 prays that you'd make good on every resolve. So you need to ask that maybe in this moment the Holy Spirit would bring a good resolve to your mind. And now I want to encourage you to tell someone. Tell a pastor. Tell a friend. This is where the Holy Spirit was putting His finger on me. And I want to pray about it. I don't want to stop until something's changed in my life. And let's pray that in a year, in two years, you're just filling that baptismal tank every Sunday. The the people who are going to go to hell are going to go to heaven. And that the church is increasingly like the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why she was bought. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness to sinners like us. And we pray, Lord God, that you would just allow us to show your mercy and your grace and your kindness to more and more sinners in Owensboro and the world. Lord, we pray that you do this in Christ's name. Amen.